Welcome to the first installment of the Geriatric Lecture Series. My name is Susan Schultz, and I'm a professor of psychiatry with an emphasis in geriatric psychiatry. I will be overviewing for you today some basic strategies on interviewing older adults. I'd like to start with a disclosure statement to emphasize I do not have any financial interests or relationships with any manufacturers of products or providers of services I might be discussing in my presentation. My objectives for this presentation are to overview some basic strategies in interviewing older adults. I'll be talking about how early changes in cognition may manifest differently in an older person during an interview. I'll also talk about differences in how older adults may, expre may express psychiatric symptoms. I'll talk about the interaction of psychiatric symptoms and function in daily life of an older adult. I'll also overview, at least briefly, the basic components of a mental status examination. I'm trying to emphasize here more of a primary care assessment rather than um, overviewing the entire diagnostic approach to the older adult, but rather to emphasize some basic strategies for how to elicit you know, meaningful, um, clinically important symptoms that might help in daily cares and adjustment of, of various um, medication strategies and intervention strategies. One of the basic elements I'd like to talk about, aside from the interview itself, is the importance in the older adult of the extra time it takes to conduct the interview. Now, this may seem like a very basic concept, and, and I apologize if it seems obvious, but I think there are many factors involved in interviewing an older adult over and above simply, you know, there's some slowness sometimes in getting to an interview, in describing symptoms, in conducting the interview, over and above, you know, potential um, slowness in the, in the interactions, there are added features such as a need to interview sometimes spouses or other informants and gather more information from other providers. So there's definitely a time element that really needs to be uh, addressed up front to double the time you expect and then even add a little bit more time in the interview of the older adult compared to interviewing younger adults. I'll be addressing the interview process overall and emphasizing a few points from the start about how to develop rapport with an older adult in a mental health assessment. Um, as you might imagine, older adults um, aren't necessarily, you know, um, geared to view favorably the idea of seeing a mental health professional. And establishing rapport with an older adult really does require um, some special techniques and, and some forethought up front about how to establish communication in a way that's not threatening and that really facilitates complete information. Oftentimes, older adults do need the assistance of a spouse or family members who may be able to observe behaviors or changes in irritability or changes in daily function that may not be readily apparent to the individual themselves. 
Furthermore, even word choices for the older adult may require some special thought about how an older person might describe a change in their mood, which may be much different than the vocabulary that's very familiar to current younger adults in talking about emotion and relationships and feelings. There are very different attitudes among older adults about talking about certain topics. This relates to the stigma that is often accompanying mental illness that may be very generational in its emphasis. And I'll also discuss a little bit today about sensory impairments that also may be barriers to accurate assessment. I'll cover briefly some structured assessments in the event that a structured cognitive assessment may be helpful for some older adults. In terms of the overall interview, um, from the very start, I'd like to mention that the general assessment really depends on appropriate you know, sensory um, perception on the part of the individual. And from a very basic standpoint, the simple question, is the patient able to hear you, may seem very basic. But I think it's important to remember that the majority of older men over the age of 75 have clinically significant hearing loss. And again, that may seem very basic, but it's important to think about that more often than not, you may as well assume that the individual does have some impairment and special you know, effort will be needed to ensure that that person is understanding. Oftentimes, it's not just a matter of volume of speech. It's a matter of making eye contact, talking slowly, and enunciating clearly, and making sure you're getting feedback that instructions are being understood or questions are being understood in a way that's meaningful. It's very clear that most older adults will not necessarily say so when they can't hear an entire question, and most older adults that require hearing aids, in fact, are not wearing them most of the time. I found a very interesting study that shows an increase in the rate of hearing impairment among individuals over the age of 50 that seems to be increasing over the last few decades. This was a study that came out over 10 years ago that showed a greater than 150% increase in the rate of hearing impairment in recent cohorts. Whether this is environmental or, or other factors um, is not clear, but certainly we, we're not seeing any reduction in the, the magnitude of this problem, and I think it does require um, a little bit of an awareness Talking fast is probably the single uh, biggest concern for the older adult who may not be tracking cognitively as quickly as a younger adult. And also being atten paying attention to enunciation and eye contact are very important as well. So what I'll cover today is the basic features of the mental status examination. In general, there are a couple key points that we try to cover in psychiatry to make sure we have a comprehensive assessment. Most frequently we start with assessing general appearance, whether a person is disheveled or well-groomed. We assess orientation and attention, which is really separate from the cognitive screening. Um, attention and orientation often help us detect a delirium or a fluctuating um, appearance in terms of orientation. 
Also, sensory impairment may be clearly evident early on if you have the sense that the person is not able to be fully aware that you're present or able to fully perceive your presence. I'll overview here today also a little bit about assessment of language and communication, whether speech is logical or whether speech is illogical or fragmented or the rate of speech is, is abnormal. I will overview a bit about how to assess mood and other psychiatric symptoms, including psychosis in the older adult. And I'll finish today with some basic screening tools to assess and perhaps quantify um, cognition over time in a person in whom you may be worried about a progressive cognitive change or fluctuations in cognitive function. In terms of the general approach, especially to the patient where you're concerned that cognitive impairment may be an important part of the clinical picture. And I'd like to emphasize this approach really throughout the talk, as most individuals who are seen by psychiatry for the first time in later life are often experiencing a change in cognitive function that perhaps is influencing their mood regulation, their functional status, and their general daily living skills in a way that often brings them to a mental health provider. Now, that's not to say that mood disorders can't occur in late life, but very frequently they occur in the context of some changes related to cognitive function, often age-related changes or also dementia-related changes may be present as well. What we often see in a person who may be experiencing cognitive decline is that retained skills that are often present even well into other memory disorders include social graces and overlearned social phrases tend to be retained very well on into um, illnesses such as dementia of, of Alzheimer's type or vascular dementia. And by that I mean the, the social banter, the hi, how are you, talking about the weather. These types of interactions are often retained in a way that can be deceiving in the sense that it may seem like a very normal interaction. Vocabulary is another overlearned cognitive skill such that a person may have an extensive vocabulary and sound very well informed, but in fact they may not have the more fluid skills at their disposal that lets them track current events and recent events as well as the longer term events. So crystallized skills is one way to describe overlearned or fund of knowledge type skills such as vocabulary that may retain be retained into later life even in the face of loss of other cognitive functions. Motor skills such as driving a car are included in these overlearned skills such that a person may remarkably be able to drive to an appointment, um, but in fact may not necessarily know um, that they're there on the correct day or, or their recent events in their lives. This is a concern, clearly, since motor skills involved with driving may be retained, but the cognitive skills involved in negotiating where you're going may in fact be severely impaired. Remote memories do tend to be retained, such as where a person grew up and their, their early life events. At times you can use some of these skills to establish communication with the patient. 
rather than proceeding directly to a mood assessment or a short-term memory assessment, which may feel um, very, you know, like an interrogation to a patient, often starting with some social conversation and talking about where the person grew up and what their early life experiences were like. These are things that nearly all older adults will have access to, provided they're not experiencing delirium or, or other um, impaired um, attentional problems, provided that they are able to provide, to pay attention. Talking about early life or their children, their occupation. These things help establish who the person is, establish that you know them and that you're interested in them. Oftentimes spending the time to talk about some remote memories may really go a long way in developing a conversation that lets you move into the more difficult questions of asking about any paranoia, mood problems, and irritability. So in my view, this is time well spent to, to work with um, some give and take before moving into perhaps a more intensive mental health evaluation. So it really boils down to enhancing communication by learning about the person's early occupation, um, by, you know, working from their level of education. Clearly, if you learn that a person's occupation um, involved a high-level, you know, accounting position, you may tailor your interview slightly differently than a person who had different educational achievement or different life skills. I think it's important with the older adult to use their surname or title if they were a professor or, or other uh, social norms unless they instruct you otherwise because I think there's a tendency for a mental health assessment to feel somewhat demoralizing and the more that we can do to avoid that type of a perception, I think the better the assessment becomes and the more complete the information obtained will be. It's also very important to realize the older adult may have had you know, disabling medical problems. They may have had difficulty getting to the interview. They may be experiencing discomforts. They may need to, need to use the restroom or have a drink of water. And I think it's very important. You know, attention to those things from the start may greatly enhance the productivity of the interview. And while these things may seem obvious, in a very busy clinical situation, it may be the last thing that a person really has time for, but it can really um, pay off in terms of, of a more thorough assessment. As I mentioned, the very start of a psychiatric assessment really depends on establishing that the person is not experiencing any, any confusion or impaired sensorium that may prevent a complete assessment. At a very subjective level, this can be picked up as simply the person is not staying focused on the interview or is not able to sustain eye contact or they may have motor restlessness that suggests they're uncomfortable or poorly attentive to the interview. For a structured assessment of confusion or impaired attention, there are some very good tools such as the CAM-ICU. If a person, for example, is experiencing a persistent delirium and a, a quantitative measure would be helpful in a clinical setting. So I'd like to refer you to its icudelirium.org for a more structured assessment in the event that a confusion or delirium assessment would be helpful. 
In brief, the overall components of such an assessment would include estimating a change in the mental status or a change in the ability to sustain attention that may be a new phenomenon over time. Also, the inattentiveness quality may be also quantified as a lack of alertness or restlessness or other evidence that the person is not able to, to sustain either an interview setting or follow commands in a way that suggests they're able to track their attention for more than a few seconds. Disorganization refers to an inability to organize one's thoughts in a cohesive manner or to follow through on commands or follow through on an assessment of, of their, their mental status. Altered consciousness may be in the extreme an inability literally to stay awake. A person may literally be nodding off throughout the course of an interview. But it also may be more subtle, where a person simply appears to be distractible or looking off to one side or picking at something in the air. You know, there may be a variety of ways that consciousness may fluctuate. It's very important to realize that we often tend to hinge our assessment of delirium on an abrupt change in mental status where, for example, a person develops a high fever and they become somnolent and poorly attentive in the context of an acute illness. However, particularly in older adults who may have an underlying cognitive problem, it's very common for an altered consciousness state to be more persistent and hypoactive. So older adults may be more vulnerable to being more chronically and persistently hypoactively impaired in terms of their ability to sustain attention, whereas younger adults who may become acutely confused may be more likely to be overtly restless or pacing or agitated in a physical sense, more so than the older adult. Once alertness is established and you're certain that the individual is in fact clearly able to participate in the conversation, their alertness is intact, they're maintaining good eye contact, and, and there's no concern about any source of delirium. The next step in the psychiatric assessment is to listen carefully and try to estimate the quality of speech. Speech gives us clues as to how logical a person may be, a rapid speech may be associated with, with a mood problem, a manic-like mood problem, which may be more common in younger adults, but certainly can happen in older adults. Um, speech may be dysarthric if there is perhaps any um, central nervous system um, problems or even, even more of a motor problem related to, to other dysfunctions such as, you know, an oral problem or a facial tremor or a facial dyskinesia. So it's important to understand the quality of the speech and the content of the speech as well, whether it's logical and goal-directed or whether it's tangential and losing one's train of thought or, or not relevant to the context of the interview. So speech does give us some good clues as to a person's thought content. Now, it's interesting that there are qualities to the speech that also may be diagnostic in the sense that hypophonic speech or very, very soft 
speech, if you have to lean forward to even hear what they're saying, may be associated with some conditions such as Lewy body dementia or Parkinson's disease, as well as subcortical conditions such as subcortical ischemic disease, um, small vessel ischemic disease, may be associated with speech changes that don't necessarily reflect an overall cognitive problem, but rather more of a psychomotor processing of speech. Slowed responses may also be a hallmark of this type of condition. And in fact, it's very important to, to pace the interview in a way that adequate time is provided to provide a verbal response to a question. It's not uncommon in the context of Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia or other subcortical um, conditions for a, a long latency period before a response is actually produced so that there may be very latent speech to the point where you may need to wait several seconds or longer before an answer may be produced and it may be completely correct, intact, cognitively normal answer that simply took a long time um, for the speech production to occur, to occur. So it's very important to ensure adequate time for an individual to answer a question. Oftentimes in a busy clinical setting, this may be you know, difficult to, to systematically do, but I think it can be a very helpful procedure. In terms of assessing mood once, once speech is, is assessed, it's very important to realize that simply asking an older adult, how is your mood, um, may not always for all individuals be the most effective approach. There are many reasons why with aging, um, the ability to express one's mood may change as well as potentially the ability to self-assess mood. Um, there's a condition, alexithymia, um, that is known to occur more frequently with age, which is just that, the inability to accurately both self-assess and express mood, literally at the neurobiologic level based on intriguing functional imaging studies. There's some evidence that older adults perceive mood differently and often express mood differently. The most common change in expression is an attenuation or less expressiveness. They may perceive emotional changes um, less so and express their own mood um, less accurately than younger adults. And that doesn't mean that they're less likely to experience depression. It simply means that their expression of it or their ability to describe it is not as efficient as one gets older. And what that may also mean is that the, a depressed individual may be expressing a depression in a different way that may be evident as irritability or increased somatic physical complaints or um, withdrawal from social activities in a way that they may not describe that they feel sad, but they may be behaving in a way that shows a loss of interest in activities or a loss of motivation um, to be engaged socially that might be a change from a previous um, status. So I think it's very important to realize that a, a depressed individual may not necessarily provide depressed mood in an accurate way at, in later life compared to the younger adult. 
along these lines, it's very helpful to have an informant available who may pick up on these changes in, in mood that aren't as apparent to the individual themselves. What this might also um, show to, to informants, caregivers, spouses, and family is a change in functional status. Someone who may normally be very involved in a bridge club or very active in certain, um, certain um, occupational activities or community activities or church activities, um, the functional status in terms of these activities may have changed over time in a way that the individual doesn't necessarily express, but in a way that might be easily um, detected by asking um, a family member or someone close to the individual. As you might imagine, the typical symptoms of depression that we normally count on to assess younger adults, such as sleep, um, changes in sleep, typically initial insomnia, low energy, a change in appetite, all of these things may vary considerably in later life with problems related to you know, diabetes, hypertension, other physical problems such as chronic pain from arthritis may affect sleep, chronic pain may affect energy. There are a number of, of medical conditions that clearly um, make a depression assessment different in the older adult. The geriatric depression scale is a very good scale that does try to account for some of these changes in later life. However, as the geriatric depression scale is quite effective, but it is a self-report scale, and it's very helpful to have an informant report to the extent possible as well. And clearly, changes in physical conditions, pain, and medication effects all have to be considered in assessing the older adult. Anxiety is also a very common um, clinical occurrence that very often co-occurs with a depressed mood. An older adult is often more comfortable talking about anxiousness, nervousness, and many times this can be a proxy for assessing what may be an underlying mood disorder that manifests as complaints of anxiety, apprehensiveness, and other sort of social phobic behaviors in later life. It's very important to discuss a suicide assessment in the older adult. I think very frequently we see suicide gestures or attempts on the part of adolescents and younger adults, and this tends to be a very big part of, of clinical care in psychiatry. However, in terms of lethality risk, risk proportionately, the older adult is at much greater lethal risk than their younger counterparts in terms of completed suicide. The national average is approximately 10 suicides per 100,000 individuals in the general population. However, if you look at particularly white males over age 85, they have the highest rate nationally of completed suicides almost five times the national rate with 48 suicide deaths, deaths per 100,000 individuals. This is a very, very big concern. Typically, the older adult, if a suicide attempt is, is um, started, completion or um, death is the more frequent outcome compared to a younger adult experiencing um, depression or other suicide risk factors. To, to address risk factors, I think it's very important to recognize that depressed mood is one piece of suicide risk, 
but there are many environmental and social um, conditions that also constitute a risk for suicide that are very important to assess in the older adult. Most importantly, a loss of role functioning or a loss of one's stature in the family or society is a very important risk factor, particularly in the older uh, male patient, um, a risk factor for suicide. That would translate clinically into a person who normally is able to maintain a household, maintain an occupation, um, or a certain function in the community who now has a disabling stroke, heart attack, arthritis, who's no longer able to function in that role, which may have constituted a large part of their self-image and their, their function in society. An abrupt loss of that, including loss of a spouse with whom a person may have been um, very involved in caregiving or very involved with in the community, any abrupt change in a person's meaningful activities or meaningful role in life is a risk factor for the development of hopelessness and a potential suicide risk. Male gender in particularly is very associated with higher risk of lethality. It, there's a suggestion that men in general um, have the lethality risk due to more lethal means, use of firearms or hanging, whereas women comparatively are more likely to overdose or have less lethal attempts. The male role in terms of loss of occupation and loss of social status is also extremely important. Hopelessness is a risk factor, feeling that one is a burden to society or a burden to one's family, um, a sense of no hope for any improvement in physical health is a risk factor. Social isolation is extremely important, particularly when combined with alcohol use and access to firearms. These environmental factors are extremely important, including um, excessive distress, anxiety, or agitation, all together can lend themselves to a suicide risk over and above simply depressed mood or the presence of a depressive disorder. It's important, however, to distinguish assessing suicide risk, which is heavily tied into feeling hopeless and helpless and distressed, which is quite different from an adaptive discussion talking about end-of-life needs, end-of-life wishes, and advanced directives. Because I think it's really very important to realize and think about the social context for the older adult often involves thinking about DNR orders and you know, loss of one's spouse, loss of one's family members and friends um, due to age-related medical conditions. So end of life is a frequent topic that older adults must encounter periodically on a regular basis with their social context. Talking about these wishes, directives, and plans really should be distinct from, from suicide. I think oftentimes an older adult may in a meaningfully way through a grieving process 
talk about wishing to be with his or her deceased spouse. And I think this is quite separate from necessarily a suicide gesture or suicide thought. It may be simply a discussion of grief or a discussion of one's social context at that time. So it's very important to explore those discussions in a way that's non-threatening, that's open, that may be you know, very sympathetic to one's situation in life. And talk about that in what can be a very adaptive and therapeutic way without an, an excessive amount of concern that it's necessarily a suicide thought or leading toward necessarily a suicide attempt. Now, when we address the assessment of psychosis, I think it's important to recognize that most frequently psychosis and other behavioral problems typically occur in the context of an underlying cognitive disorder such as dementia of the Alzheimer's type or a dementia of the vascular type. And so these types of problems really are part of really a multidimensional assessment where the severity of cognitive impairment is really quite important. The severity of any behavioral dysregulation also requires assessment. And then psychosis itself is very frequently a part of a bigger clinical picture, most commonly occurring in the context of a dementia. Now, that's not to say that psychosis may occur and may, in fact, be an early-on occurrence of an underlying developing dementia or simply a delusional disorder in late life. So I think its assessment is important, you know, regardless of the overall clinical problem, but most commonly when this occurs, it is in the context of a dementia or a delirium being the two most common sources of psychosis in late life. Now, hallucinations, particularly visual, one would associate primarily with a delirium, usually with other medical sources, which oftentimes in later life may be polypharmacy um, or an underlying urinary tract infection or other metabolic problem. However, sensory impairments such as hearing loss and visual loss also do lend themselves to a vulnerability to hallucinations in late life. More commonly in the context of, of a dementia, one may run into persecutory delusions, which unfortunately often target the nearest individual, which may be a family caregiver or, or other persons involved with, with the patient, which can lend itself to a very distressful caregiving environment. When delusions are experienced in late life, very frequently they tend to be plausible and non-bizarre. And by that, I mean a person may feel that their money is being mishandled or their belongings are being taken or, or other persecutory type ideas or I'm being put away in a nursing home so that you can take my money. These types of, of persecutory beliefs, which are less bizarre than a person who may be in young life experiencing schizophrenia who may feel like there are aliens monitoring them or aliens, you know, physically, you know, manipulating them or, or other types of bizarre uh, beliefs, a computer chip in one's head, that type of thing, or delusions that their, their physical movements are being altered in some way. In contrast, in the context of a dementia in an older adult, 
Um, often the delusions are people are, my wife is unfaithful or more plausible, my belongings are being taken. This kind of accusatory delusions may be clearly significantly distressful for caregivers because when it's plausible, there's a feeling of, of, a, of a need to defend oneself from such um, persecutory accusations. This lends itself to a great deal of distress in the caregiving setting. And very oftentimes, it's important to recognize that distress and to address it with caregivers to, to provide reassurance that these fixed beliefs are very common. It's not a fault of, of inappropriate caregiving, and it's not the family member's fault that these things occur. I think frequently there's an important need to address that because caregivers often will feel very defensive or feel like they're being accused of uh, bad caregiving. The other important thing to remember is that this occurs in, in close to half and probably more um, than half of persons with um, dementia at some point over the course of the illness. Most commonly, psychosis does tend to blend with other dysregulation of behavior that tends again to be multidimensional. Behavioral dysregulation may be motor in the sense of restless agitation, aggression, as well as mood instability may provide you know, a mixture of symptoms um, that often occur when um, in later stages, particularly of a cognitive disorder, um, that behavior starts to break down. It's very important to recognize that behavioral dysregulation in the context of dementia really cannot be accurately assessed <clears throat> excuse me in the context of a cross-sectional evaluation with only the patient so conducting a psychiatric assessment involving only a patient to try to truly capture the extent of behavioral dysregulation particularly in the context of dementia is really going to be highly um, uninformative in fact, when a patient is brought in, particularly for a psychiatric assessment in a mental health clinic, invariably this will be the best behaved day that the patient has ever had. And frequently a clinician uh, may be doing a psychiatric assessment with a patient who has even severe behavioral dysregulation and may not pick up on any behavior problems whatsoever in a short one-on-one -on -one interview with that patient. They may have their retained social graces and they, be, they may be very pleasant at that moment with the doctor or with the clinician and there may be nothing detected whatsoever. However, when you go back to family caregivers or other care providers who see the day-to-day -day fluctuations in behavior and who have to deal with providing cares, which often it's during a bathing time or during feeding or during some type of stressful environment, which may even be traveling, um, then you may see an increase in irritability, mood dysregulation or aggressiveness that doesn't occur in a short-term interview. Furthermore, there may be days where such behaviors um, don't occur or even diurnal variation. So you really have to quantify over a specific period of time whether such behaviors are occurring and try to get an assessment of how severe they are and what the nature of those, of those behaviors are. To try to get a handle on this in more of a quantitative way, 
the neuropsychiatric inventory may be a very helpful means of, of doing that. It's a caregiver-based scale that addresses both the frequency of behavioral dysregulation as well as the severity of each incident because these are two very important factors that really matter in terms of deciding what type of intervention is needed, whether it's just reducing the environmental stressors or stimuli or whether it means going to a medication intervention or other more significant intervention, I think depends on really understanding severity and frequency. Now, the neuropsychiatric inventory was developed by Dr. Cummings at UCLA, a training module as well as um, the structured assessment itself is available, and one of these sites would be the npitest.net that I've provided here for you. I think this is a very helpful structured tool if, if a detailed assessment of the full scope of behaviors is necessary or helpful for following up a treatment plan or an initial assessment. I think one of the very helpful facets of this particular tool is that there is a version that is created for the nursing home and the unique environment of the nursing home patient who very commonly has special issues such as requiring bathing assistance or requiring um, assistance with meals that may not be relevant to assessing a person who's still in a home or community environment. Um, furthermore, for a brief clinical practice um, tool, the MPIQ is a clinician-rated brief assessment that may be helpful in a clinical setting that does actually include a rating of caregiver distress, which, as I mentioned, caregiver distress is a very, very good estimate of the nature of psychotic and, and behavioral dysregulation. The MPI itself does capture the whole range of delusions, hallucinations, agitation, as well as depression, anxiety, elation, apathy, disinhibition, motor disturbances, as well as um, some of the vegetative things such as sleep-wake disturbance and appetite. And I think that's really that really reflects well the nature of the behavior problems you see in late life, which is they really do span a very broad gamut of problems that really defies categorizing in a way that we like to neatly categorize younger adults into a mood disorder or an anxiety disorder or any one clear disorder is frequently not possible in the older adult. So to review some key points regarding the behavior assessment, one of the most important reasons why it's important to have a caregiver or a spouse assessment, even in persons who may not yet even have any cognitive problems at all, the ability to self-assess or to have insight into mood, anxiety, or irritability irritability changes in late life is very often impaired. So the ability to self-express symptoms may not give you the full picture as opposed to asking a close um, informant such as a care provider or spouse. Again, the confrontational approach um, for, for an older adult is really going to be counterproductive um, in assessing whether it's 
you know, persecutory delusions or, or other symptoms. And I think this is very important in the sense of trying to get around or work with a person who may be experiencing feelings of persecution or feelings, you know, that their belongings are missing or other, other concerns, trying to help in a behavior modification approach implies a learning and ability to respond to learning and consequences that really is not very effective, is particularly in older adults who are experiencing cognitive decline. The ability to learn new behaviors once a person has developed agitation in later life is very limited. Now, that's not to say a person in, in later life who is cognitively intact may respond to more cognitive approaches to work on uh, mood-related depressive thoughts. But once behavior starts to break down, the ability for that individual to learn new coping skills may be compromised. It's also very important to provide an environment so that there isn't extra stress by expecting more from a person's daily skills than they are able to actually manage. And I think it's important when we use family caregivers as important sources of information to remember that it's very difficult oftentimes, especially for family care providers, to estimate skill changes over time. They are often very, very close to the individual. It's very hard on a daily basis to see how a person may be declining over time. And I, there's an interesting study by Lowenstein in 2001 that, that talked about this, that particularly once cognitive impairment has begun, it's very difficult for family members to accurately estimate the ability, for example, to um, perform cognitive skills such as, you know, counting change or estimating money or negotiating complex social situations so that what may happen is a person may continue to participate in complex social situations, social outings that may exceed their ability to actually cope and manage those situations. So tapping into those early changes over time may be important. And oftentimes, fam oftentimes family members do experience you know significant distress when the patient's irritability or or mood symptoms or or paranoia may surface so tapping into really what is an entire social unit not just the patient um, themselves is important now cognitive screening is another piece of the mental status examination that i'll briefly conclude with a few tools and a few strategies in the event that there may be suspected early cognitive decline or a need to map along more severe cognitive measures over time, there are some very good screening tools that may be useful for monitoring the clinical situation in this context. But it's important to remember that screening tools are distinct from the more complete neuropsychological testing that may be very valuable when you're trying to get a clear diagnosis early on, if you suspect maybe a cognitive decline, a full you know, neuropsychological testing period that may take a couple hours is really needed to fully capture any changes in cognition that may be occurring over time, as well as distinguishing different types of dementia, such as an Alzheimer's type where you have more amnestic or memory changes, 
from a vascular type where you have more diffuse changes in function that may include things like visual spatial changes or psychomotor changes or other cognitive processes separate from memory processing. Now, neuropsychological testing, however, is really a yearly assessment or you know, perhaps can be conducted more frequently than yearly. But because of the extent of the testing and the possibility that there may be practice effects from testing, complete testing cannot be done as a clinical tool for, um, for, cognitive mon or for clinical monitoring uh, of patients over short periods of time. Other tests, such as the modified mini-mental state, may be helpful for that type of thing, for clinical monitoring. The 3MS is, is an alternative to a more common test like the mini-mental status examination, which is a very common cognitive screen used clinically, although there have been some um, copyright issues with the mini-mental status exam lately. Oftentimes, the, the 3MS is another alternative that may also be used in the clinical setting. The 3MS is very similar to the mini-mental status exam, except that it, it spans a 100-point scale and has a couple additional features to try to capture some cognitive processing or some cognitive skills such as word fluency that is not assessed in the mini-mental status examination. So I'm providing for you a website to find the 3MS and read more about how to conduct that tool as a screen that might that may pick up on cognitive changes as well as um, assess any change in those um, cognitive skills over time. The clock drawing test is another measure that may give an idea of some impaired cognitive functioning as a screening tool that can also be mapped over time to assess changes in, in overall cognitive function. The clock drawing test is, is a handy test in the sense that it can be done quickly in the clinical setting and provide um, a fair amount of information on the cognitive status of that individual at that time. To briefly describe the clock drawing test, um, it's a very simple test involving um, drawing a clock. And there are a number of ways to approach the um, the start of the test. Some individuals do have the patient um, themselves draw a circle to approximate the face of a clock. Um, in my view, I often draw the circle to begin the test because you can also get a fair amount of information with the circle already there. So you indicate to the patient that the circle represents the face of a clock and ask the patient to put in the number so that it looks like a clock and Add the arms so that the clock indicates the time to be 10 minutes after 11. Now, there are multiple methods of scoring this, but I will over overview for you the key pieces that you may use to assess the scoring. And the most important thing, really, is to, you know, for each clinician to use the same method every time so that you can sort of quantify that person's function each time to assess any changes in mental status. And what you're, what you're looking for as you score a clock drawing test is to first see if they can draw the circle, which I often do for them. But you look at how if they have presented each number in correct sequence, 
Now there are a number of ways of doing this. Um, one method would be to, to draw the face into quadrants and make sure they have numbers in each quadrant. But another way is to simply look if they have an appropriate sequence or are they being perseverative and may start with the number one and then repeat one, one, one all the way through? Or do they go ahead and put the numbers in the correct sequence and occasionally show evidence of planning where some patients will put the 12 at the top and the three, the six, and the nine, which shows that they're able to do some planning ahead, which would be a positive cognitive skill to have as opposed to simply starting the numbers in sequence themselves. Secondly, is their visual spatial skills um, showing that they can correctly spatially order the numbers in a way that they're estimating the correct space between them such that by the time they get around the clock they have the correct spatial arrangement. That's yet another cognitive function that would be very important to estimate that one could also quantify if you were to quantitatively score the exam. Then thirdly, do they remember to put in, have they, after that much of the exam, do they still remember that they were supposed to draw clock hands? And I think that's important to see if they have retained that information. Often a person will start to draw the clock, but then by the time they've started the numbers, they've forgotten that they were supposed to put in hands and put in the correct time. So checking to see if they remember to draw clock hands, and then if they do, do they show approximately the correct time, or do they have the hands correctly drawn with one longer than the other, and depicting the exact time. So it, you know, it really doesn't matter how you choose to score the exam. I've given a reference for one method of quantitatively scoring the exam, but the important thing is to use the same method each time, and it can be very informative and, in fact, can fluctuate um, over time and give a good idea of attention, planning, memory, and spatial function. Another cognitive measure that may be very useful to use in the clinical setting that may also fluctuate over time and be a good measure of, of how to detect change or a good way to detect change um, across time in a patient is the trail-making test B, which involves spatially connecting numbers alternating with letters in sequence. It's a very useful measure of the ability to sustain attention and keep in one's memory what the next sequence would be and what the actual task itself would be. And this may be a very nice way to monitor change in clinical status in a patient where you may be concerned that they're experiencing fluctuations due to a delirium or other source of impairment in attention. Well, I've tried to overview today most of the key points that I feel may be helpful in addressing the older adult and trying to gather the most useful um, information possible to guide treatment and to guide diagnoses in later life. Although I really haven't touched on the spectrum of diagnoses that, that one may make, I think I've tried to emphasize that really the combination of cognitive changes and a number of mood and behavioral changes are more often the norm in later life compared to younger adults who may have very discrete mental health symptoms that are just mood related or um, just psychosis related. 
overall, as, as life, the lifespan goes on in the bigger picture, really cognition and emotional regulation change in a variety of ways. It is heavily influenced by changes in cognition is the big one, but very commonly role changes, loss of a spouse, sensory changes, very commonly medical and physical changes associated with pain, all lend themselves to loss of interest at times, lower mood, um, the development of anxiety with new social demands. There are a variety of ways that cognition and emotion may present differently in the older adult. And really taking a look at the whole picture, not just the self-reported mood or self-reported anxiety at one visit, but the whole picture of what's happening at home, what's happening with spouse or family, what's happening with the day-to-day social needs of that individual, whether it's social isolation or um, social distress related to um, paranoid ideas. The whole, the whole spectrum, I think, really requires a comprehensive view, and the psychiatric assessment may be just one small piece that helps us understand the total needs of that individual. And after that total picture is understood, then often psychiatric treatment can be best you know, prescribed and implemented. I think early detection and addressing changes in mental state in later life really should emphasize what is the quality of life for that individual. Some individuals might develop some suspiciousness that's actually chronic and you know may not necessarily impair quality of life. I think really looking at what's best for the patient, what's best for their, their family, caregivers, and the big picture is, is the most important way to decide on treatment options. And I think what really matters is thinking about what the person's life view might be, what their wishes are for their for their health in later life and for their living environment, and really trying to make the the later years of life as as good as they can possibly be. I think that's the most important thing. And if you go into every assessment with that idea, I think that will be the most successful assessment that that you can do. Thank you for your time, and I appreciate your attention to the first installment of the Geriatric Lecture Series for the Iowa Geriatric Education Center. Thank you so much for your attention, and I hope some pieces of this have been helpful.